We are not uh, helpless. My side is not helpless. Even in this situation, we are not helpless. This is a big blow. And this means a lot of work. The first step is to put your eye on the states where abortion is going to continue to be legal and to do everything you can in those states to make it more available and more accessible. That's what you have to do. That's it. We have half the states. So instead of concentrating on the half, and don't ignore the state, you know, go ahead, go and demonstrate and, you know, try to elect officials and you can do all of that stuff, but concentrate on your strengths, not your weaknesses. And our strengths are the states where abortion is going to continue to be legal. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. As you're almost certainly aware, last week, a draft of a Supreme Court opinion indicating that the court was poised to overturn Roe versus Wade, the landmark decision legalizing abortion, was leaked to the press. The unprecedented leak of a Supreme Court document was shocking in and of itself, but supporters of abortion rights, and that includes technically the majority of Americans, were stunned and dismayed by the news. I'm about as pro-choice as you can get, so I was also dismayed, if not exactly surprised, and I was newly incentivized to do something I've been meaning to do since I started this podcast, which is to have a sober-minded conversation about practical, realistic ways to keep abortion accessible in a post-Roe world. So I called Francis Kissling. Francis is a longtime activist in the abortion rights movement and ran an abortion clinic in New York City in the early 1970s, before the passage of Roe, when the procedure was only legal in a handful of states. Later, she was the founding president of the National Abortion Federation. She also is a Catholic and served for 25 years as president of Catholics for Choice. She's currently president of the Center for Health, Ethics, and Social Policy in Washington, D.C., and a professor of philosophy and ethics. She's been called the philosopher of the pro-choice movement, and I think you're about to see why. This is a remarkable conversation in which we talked about the history of Roe, the emotions surrounding it for people on both sides, and why, despite the current upset, overturning Roe is not going to set the world back to pre-1973. To that end, we ask what can be done to keep access to abortion alive in a post-Roe world. As Kissling sees it, it's time to shift the focus away from legislation in red states and focus on what blue states can do to serve women from all over the country. So here's my conversation with Frances Kissling. Frances Kissling, welcome to The Unspeakable. Good to be with you. We're recording this on May 5th. So earlier this week, a draft of a Supreme Court opinion indicating that the court was poised to overturn Roe v. Wade was leaked to the press. Needless to say, this shocked the public as well as some lawmakers. You are a longtime pro-choice activist. You're a policy expert. You've been called the philosopher of the pro-choice movement. You've also served as president for Catholics for a Free Choice. 
I called you on the day the news broke, and I imagine you were getting lots of calls that day. So my first question is, what was your reaction when you heard about this draft opinion? What was the first thing that went through your mind? Well, first of all, I wasn't I wasn't surprised. I mean, I think that that most of us were prepared for Roe to be overturned. Um, I was surprised by the fact that that John I was a little surprised that John Roberts had not joined um, the five other Catholics who participated in that decision. But nonetheless, he didn't, which is a somewhat good sign. At the same time, you know, I think you can be not surprised at something, but the reality did sink in. I mean, that, okay, we now face a situation where the where we're going to have to work very hard for another 10 or 20 years to try to stabilize the availability of abortion. I think we had a good run. Let's let's not forget that. Whatever the shortcomings for, that legal scholars find in Roe, legal scholars who agree that abortion should be legal, who found shortcomings in it, whatever those shortcomings are, it lasted for 49 years. Okay. There were some restrictions, but that's a kind of, you know, like for a Supreme Court decision, it's not a long time. But on an issue as controversial as the abortion issue is, it lasted for a long time. On the other hand, I think that, you know, for some time now, I have been critical of the way in which uh, the strong supporters of the of the right to choose abortion have framed this argument and the fact that that framing around rights has not changed in the entire 50, you know, almost 50 years since Roe. You know, 1970 was a, is a long is a long time ago in terms of uh, ideas, creativity, conceptualization, those kinds of things. And the messaging around this is a right, this is a near absolute right, and what I have been known to call as pro-choice triumphalism um, has not served us well in terms of strong public opinion, never mind the law. I'm not an expert on the law. I'm an expert on how people feel, um, not, as I say, about the law. And so for me, it was also an unpleasant confirmation of my own feeling that a more nuanced position on abortion is necessary, and now it really is necessary because we don't have that court decision that we can just say, well, it's a right. Women have a right to do this and trust women and you know, go on about your business. This is not going to work for the next 20 years where we're going to, those of us who believe abortion should be legal and available and, um, and is a permissible, justifiable act, um, are are going to have to speak to people, more people than we have ever spoken to before. Can you just explain, Francis, for some of our listeners who probably don't understand really the the mechanics of Roe? I mean, it was folded under this privacy 
I don't know, clause logic. And I think probably a lot of younger people don't really understand this at all. Can you kind of explain how it came to be constructed the way it is and why it was so flawed or just kind of vulnerable? Yes, I can try to do that. First of all, there is, you know, there are some things that that the, even the opponents, the legal opponents say, and and those people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg have said, which um, color this. Roe v. There is no such thing in the Constitution as a right to privacy. There's no direct right to privacy, but yet that was the basis on which Roe was decided. It came essentially from only one prior decision, and that was a decision in Connecticut about 10 years earlier around contraception, a far less controversial issue than abortion, in which the contraception was illegal in Connecticut for married couples as well as everybody else, and a suit was brought, and um, it was decided that couples in the privacy of their their domain had a right to decide what to do about when and whether to have children. Um, and therefore, that was when contraception became legally accepted through a Supreme Court decision. And it was that decision in Griswold that was used as the precedent to permit the same kind of privacy right to be articulated in Roe. That's the best I can say. There was nothing else that they could hang it on. You know, this was it was a slender twig on the tree, but it was strong enough that the justices at that time were able to used it and and were successful. I also think that there are there are things that don't particularly necessarily relate to the legal underpinnings of it of a of a a decision that justices do take into consideration abortion was legal i mean abortion was illegal uh in it was legal in some states but it was essentially illegal and had been illegal for a very long time and we all saw what we saw of abortion prior to roe was that women did die that the process of get that you could get an illegal abortion, particularly if you were a woman who had a bit of money, um, and um, and and it caused it caused a lot of suffering, and so I do think that 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 sense of suffering influenced the justices. The other thing that was important in terms of my reading of the history, remember there were people probably don't know this either. There were two cases that went before the court. There was Roe, and then there was Doe. Doe was a case from Georgia. And Doe was argued on the basis of anti-discrimination, okay, that, that to, to have abortion illegal was discriminatory. The justices bought the privacy argument, but they didn't buy the discrimination argument. And I also think what was not understood by many um, is that the justices were also dealing with the doctor's privacy, okay? Because really what, the, what Roe says is a woman and her doctor can decide. And, you know, these were nine white men uh, of a certain class 
who would have an affinity to and, and a respect for, for doctors and their ability to make decisions. And so that was also a very strong reason why, um, why the Roe framework, a doctor and privacy and the medical relationship was, was the basis of the decision and the, the, the basis they accepted rather than the case that dealt with the fact that, you know, there's a lot of discrimination here in make in keeping abortion illegal. So I think I think those were those are important things to keep in mind when we when we look at Roe. We also had, and this influenced Roe, there were many amicus briefs, you know, friend of the court briefs that were filed at the time Roe was decided, which showed that in those states like California, New York, Washington, DC, Colorado, who had legalized abortion at the state level, there was ample evidence that women's health was improved. Women didn't die and women didn't lose their uteruses. They didn't be, you know, they didn't, they didn't get sick. Um, they were able to have abortions and continue to be able to make reproductive decisions in the future. And so that also, those were some of the influences of the time. Okay, I did not realize that abortion was legal in any states before Roe. From 1970 on, abortion abortion was made legal in New York, which is where I lived, in July 1970. What was your activism like in this era? When did you get into this arena? I got involved in 1970. I was a recent college graduate. I was working for um, Macmillan Publishing Company when abortion became legal in New York. And I had a friend who was a doctor, who's a psychiatrist, and he knew two other doctors who were opening an abortion clinic and they hired me to run it. So my first experience in this field from 1970 to 19, to, to the time of the Supreme Court decision was actually running an abortion clinic in New York. What was that like? It was a very it was a very interesting experience. Um, and I think it's a grounding for everything else that I have done in the field of abortion in two ways. One, I was a Catholic. I was asked to run an abortion clinic and I said yes. So obviously I already had transgressed conservative or traditional Catholicism because I thought that abortion was something that women should be able to decide. And what I had in working in that clinic was the direct experience of how women who came for abortions experienced their situation. And I, in a way, it has framed the way in which I think about abortion and I talk about abortion forever, because women who came for abortion, you know, look, there's a broad variation of opinion among women who get abortion. There are women for whom abortion is not a significant moral issue. They, they, they do not have a background or were not raised in a way where abortion was a bad thing. It may have not even have been dealt with, but they certainly didn't come with a religious objection to abortion. And for them, this was a, this was a necessity. Uh, they didn't want to be pregnant. They didn't want to have, weren't ready to have children, but they had no, there was no hand wringing associated with this. 
But for a lot of women, they had a lot of questions. Uh, the first thing I would say is that um, they thought about what they were going to do. Not every woman shows what she's feeling, particularly on a day you go for a medical procedure like that. Some were quite stoical, but you definitely had thought through what you were going to do. And the kinds of questions that women asked were interesting. They wanted to know, was their baby, and most women refer to the, the fetus as a baby, is my baby going to feel pain? They cared in some sense, and I assume wanted to assuage guilt if they felt it. This entity, they didn't want this entity to suffer. They didn't want to have this entity, and they didn't want to have a baby, but they weren't looking for it to suffer. Some women would ask if we would baptize the fetus. Some women wanted to take the tissue, and after an, after an abortion, what you have is primarily tissue. They wanted to take it home, and they wanted to bury it. Um, so there was a connection. This was something they felt was the right thing to do, but they did, but they also would have preferred not to have to do this. And what I sensed in many women was um, the abortion itself, the act of abortion was less troubling than the circumstances that put them in this position, that they felt this was the best solution for them. A failed relationship. You know, I thought the guy was going to marry me and, you know, turned out to be a jerk. Or I already have kids and this was an accidental pregnancy and I can't take care of the kids I have plus another child at this point in time. There were there were there was always a sense of something wasn't working right in their lives and the what wasn't working right was far more of a problem than the fact that they were going to end, to terminate that nascent life. And so, you know, when you, when you have, I mean, and, and the clinic I worked in, clinics in New York in 1970, 71, 72, were very, very busy places. Um, in my clinic, we saw as many as 100 women a day on a Saturday. Women came from, you know, women arrived, young girls arrived with their parents, other, other women and girls arrived with boyfriends people and husbands, people arrived alone. Um, I would arrive at the clinic at like 7.30 in the morning and there would be, the parking lot would be filled with cars from Kentucky, Georgia, Maine, all, all of those, those East Coast places where, where, that they could get to. And, and so the, the, it was, it, you got to see a lot of women, got to see a lot of women. And, and you saw that, you saw that they, they struggled, they, they struggled and um, they considered abortion. They might not have used words as sophisticated as I'm going to use now. They considered abortion an act that they had to justify. For most women, abortion required justification. And I think that, you know, moving forward in a sense, in terms of my 
way of looking at abortion now and my way I think we should be thinking about and talking about abortion is that is not the simplistic way the movement tends to deal with it because the movement tends to say any tough question you ask somebody who's in the movement about abortion gets answered well it's a woman's right to decide or well trust women women make good decisions you know those are the kinds of answers you get no matter how complex the situation may be that is being described and i think that the reality and and as, as i say i think that that the the it doesn't really from my past experience it doesn't really reflect the way that women think about abortion you know they as i said they they look to justify to find they think i can do this this is okay but i have to have a reason and i think that we have we haven't lacked in women's stories a lot of women's stories are told but we have lacked in our own way of talking about abortion um the fact that we too might think abortion requires some justification the women who were coming into the clinic in new york at that time how far along did they happen did they tend to be and were there any restrictions in terms of trimester or however it was being well, measured abortion, yeah abortion was legal in new york through the 24th week of pregnancy for the most part i mean where in for the most part the clinics you know the non the in clinical settings abortion almost all of the patients we saw were less than 12 weeks were 12 weeks or less pregnant and of course they came much closer to the 12 week line in terms of first trimester because it took them time to find some place to go you know if you lived in rural kentucky how did you find out how to get to new york to have an abortion and then you had to get some money together and everything so so primarily they were first first trimester abortions but there were um, and at that time, the technology around abortion was not as sophisticated as it is now. And the medical uh, medical opinion at that point was that between the 12th week and the 16th week, you shouldn't do an abortion because the lining of the uterus was weaker and the likelihood of perforating the uterus was higher. So actually, women who were beyond 12 weeks had to wait until the 16th or the 17th week to have a second trimester procedure. But second trimester abortions were performed in New York state up to the 24th week. Was the political climate at that time such that you would have been surprised as to how contentious it's become in the last several decades since Roe was passed? Yes. There were no pickets. You know, no, nobody picketed our clinic. Nobody. I worked in two different clinics over time. Nobody picketed either one of those clinics. There was nobody praying the rosary outside the clinic. There was no assaulting of doctors. For example, um, the clinic I worked in was very near Albert Einstein Hospital of Medicine in the Bronx. The chief of service at Albert Einstein at that time was a staunch, was a very respected OBGYN who was a staunch supporter of abortion rights. The OBGYN residents in the hospital 
worked in the clinics and provided the abortion, most of the abortion services. We also had, you know, certified OBGYNs, but the residents, more, more residents did these procedures than experience, than very, very experienced doctors. And there, the, you know, they, they, the doctors were not uh, thought badly of at Einstein. It was, you know, also let's remember this was, this was New York. This might have been different if this clinic had been opened in Alabama, but in New York, we did not, we, and California the same and Colorado the same. There were not, there was not that, that, that those sentiments had not yet arisen. I'd also say something else about this. There, as the years passed, and there came a time when um, clinics were opened all over the country, the composition of opposition changed. In the early 70s, the opposition to abortion came primarily from the Catholic community, not the evangelical community. And, you know, the bishops who were the leaders of that Catholic movement were not, and this is true throughout the entire, up to now, the bishops took a strategy that was to try to stop abortions and make them illegal that was based on high level advocacy. They went to, they, they, you know, they would accost the legislators that were parishioners in their things and tell them, you know, you know, John, you better change your mind on this. This is not right. And they would lobby at the legislative level. They were not the kind of people to picket clinics. This was just, this was, we, we, we didn't do those things. It was only at that point in time, politically, when abortion became a, an evangelical issue that you saw that period when there were massive demonstrations in front of abortion clinics, when people would take uh, bicycle locks and lock themselves to the doors of the clinics, when, you know, and some Catholics participated in that kind of activity, but for the most part, the opposition to abortion is divided into two categories. The Catholic category, which is more of a strategic, high-level writing legislation, working directly with legislators, et cetera, that kind of activity. Um, they were the strategists, the Catholic side was the strategists of the anti-abortion movement and the troops were the evangelicals. Mm. But we, didn't, we didn't experience that. When did this start to spread among evangelicals? Was it late in the later 70s? No, 80s. 80s. This, this is a phenomenon of the 80s. And to what do you attribute that? Well, uh, you know, I think that what happened, I mean, I think this has to do also with the rise of, I think this was a deliberate strategy, the involvement of evangelicals. It, it happened with the rise of things like Jerry Falwell, the moral majority, 
members of Congress who were Republican, conservative Republican members of Congress who were looking for an issue that they could sink their teeth into that would mobilize people for larger conservative issues. The focus on the family ideas were not just pastors or politicians who were against abortion. They had a a plan for everything they thought that was going wrong with America. I mean, everything was going wrong. Women were, you know, women were becoming equal to men. The gay rights movement may have been beginning. Um, the, the, The world... Their children were forced to go to public school. Their children went to public schools and were, uh, in their opinions, inundated with a kind of liberalism that that, you know, they didn't agree with. Uh, They couldn't control the schools. The, the, The seeds of what we see now were planted at that point in time, and they made considered a judgment that the mobilizing issue could be abortion. So that was like a real grab it by the collar issue that the public could react to emotionally. Yes, exactly. I mean, people were, you know, people were all, those people in the evangelical communities were already feeling rejected by society. Because all these laws were changing, you know, laws were changing, marriage laws, divorce laws, schools were changing, everything was changing and everything that they they were not able to maintain an insular identity. They were assaulted by liberalism. Right. The world was changing. And so the. The abortion issue, the abortion issue was an easy sort of easily under it was an understandable it was a very legible thing to sort of wrap all these other issues around. Exactly. You know, women are having abortions and and you have the innocent fetus. I mean, I've often said if you are having in this battle between both sides, if you have. And the conflict comes down to this. Women or babies, babies win. Rights versus morality, morality wins. I want to talk about how things might have gone differently if the legislation had been written differently. But before we get to that, I want to jump ahead to what you and I were talking about on the phone the other day, which is essentially... Where do we go from here and what can we do from here? Because there's a whole lot of panic happening right now. First of all, I think that the demise of Roe, of the concept of a fundamental right to decide whether or not to continue a pregnancy, and and the position of the movement around this as it's a right leave it alone, you can't do anything about this because it's a right, is not the major reason that we are, we have lost, okay? We have lost because the world has changed. You know, we we live, you know, like we live in a deeply polarized society with deep conservatism 
on more than on the ascendancy. And we live in a country where for other reasons than abortion at this stage, many states have gone red. You know, we've got half, you know, more than half the states are red states. And they're not red because of abortion. Abortion may have been the original genesis of unhappiness and distrust, but there are many of government, but there are many other things that have led to a conservative uh, rise in those in those in those red states and in other states as well. So that's what we've been facing. So I just I do want to be clear about that. This is this is I'm I'm not one who's faulting the movement for the situation we face. But we have to live with this. We have to work from the situation that we face. And my view is that the nostalgia, many of us in the movement, the older people in the movement, feel around rights has got to be tempered because it doesn't, it's not getting us where we want to get. When this when Roe falls, which it will, in at least as you know, common common knowledge, at least 26 states are going to make Roe, make abortion illegal, period. My own view, and, and what I'm hearing, which disturbs me in the movement, is that we need new messages. And then I hear the same old messages. We have to get out in the streets. We have to, um, you know, fight for our rights, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the message really, we have to elect the right legislators. We have to turn the ledgers. We have to, you know, like we have to work in the red states. My own view, this is a pure practical view, is that's not going to work. I mean, we haven't turned a red state purple in 10 years. So I'm not. I'm not saying we should abandon legislative activity or the idea of a federal law or any of those things. But I'm saying that if that's where we spend our money, women are still not going to get abortion. The rights argumentation, from my perspective, is over. Now, what, why was rights, were, this is, I'm going where I want to go. Why were rights important? Our goal, my goal, talk about me, my goal is that women get the abortions that they believe are in their best interest. That's what, I, that's what I'm for. I'm for women having access to abortion. If rights argumentation was going to meet that goal, I would be for rights argumentation. But as I said, my judgment is rights argumentation is not going to get us where we want to get. So what we need to be prepared to do is shift our mindset to the goal is that women get safe, legal, timely abortion services. And that means we spend our money and our energy in a different way. How do we spend it? What I have said to the movement is that whether you are a foundation who is supporting the political side of abortion or an individual who is giving money to the political side of abortion, you must give a certain percentage of the money you give to those funds and those 
places that are paying for the abortion, travel, and other things that women need, that this is a moral obligation to do that. That's the first step. The second step is in states where abortion is, remains legal, we are going to need more clinics, more hospitals, more places that are providing abortion services. And what that means is we are going to, the advocacy moves to a certain extent from the political side to the health services side. So for example, there are 50,000 OBGYNs in the United States of America. Only 1,500 of them report that they provide abortion services. We are going to have to advocate within the medical community for more doctors to provide these services. That's number one. We also are going to have to, I started this interview by talking about how simple and safe a first trimester abortion procedure is. We don't need, abortions do not need to be provided by doctors. Surgical abortions can be provided by nurses and by trained technicians. And we are going to need to do that. We're going to need to, to make it, it's legal in, in now, I think 16 or 17 states for uh, non-doctor healthcare providers to provide abortion services. And we are going to need to extend that so that women can get abortions early and safely in their pregnancy. We also have a problem in this country. There are many problems associated even with legal abortion. A lot of our public hospitals don't provide abortions. And we are going to have to lobby at the public, at the public hospital level in states where abortion is legal to get those public hospitals to provide abortion services. And finally, the other thing which is important is that the advances in technology, i.e. that we now do have the ability for women to take pills, medication, and to abort and for the pills to cause the abortion. And we already have a very high percentage of women, not yet the majority, who are using pills as opposed to having surgical abortions. And we have to increase, again, in states where it is legal, access to these pills. So that, but the, you know, those are specific suggestions, but the underlying position is a change in mentality from trying to reestablish the role of the 70s on the state level as a right in the law to focusing on the goal, a new goal, which is that women get abortions that they decide that they need. We're going to pause here for a short message from me. Are you appreciating this conversation and wishing there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here. I do this show every week and I pretty much do it all by myself. That is why, as much as I'm loath to ask for help, people who know me know this, I am offering this gentle reminder that if you value honest, thoughtful, 
nuanced conversations with all kinds of people, novelists, scientists, philosophers, comedians, journalists, sometimes even just regular folks with something interesting to say, I hope you'll consider supporting the show in any way you can. One way to do this is by joining our Patreon community at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. You can join for as little as $5 a month. That gives you early and ad-free access to the show or for as much as $100 a month. And yes, people have done that. There are lots of perks at every level, including if you join at the $10 a month tier or higher, the chance to join our bi-weekly hangout where we, and that includes me, get together on Zoom to talk about a recent specific episode of the show. Joining at that level also gets you discounts on your first purchase of official Unspeakable Podcast Nuanced AF merchandise. If Patreon is not your thing, you can also make a one-time donation in any amount by going to the podcast webpage at theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking the donation button. This podcast is a one-woman enterprise. I'm not affiliated with any institution, media company, secret investment cabal, or anything like that. I do it because I love it. And if you love it, or even like it, I hope you'll consider supporting it in any way that makes sense for you. Leaving a positive rating or review wherever you get your podcasts is a big help, actually. And telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, just spreading the word actually means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show, for making the unspeakable worth speaking. And with that, back to the interview. I want to understand something about the abortions using pills, medications. Is that something that if you are living in a red state, for instance, you would not be able to get those through the mail from another state? Like how easy or not easy is that? It's going to vary. We are already in the position in some states where laws laws are be in process of being passed, which prohibit that if abortion is illegal in that state, you can't you bringing the pill into get getting the pill via the mail or getting the pill via a telehealth encounter is going to be illegal. So that 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 is that it's a good solution on the medical level. But there are there are going with everything we try, everything that is tried to make abortion available. There will be efforts on the part of those who want it to be illegal to try to block those measures. And in some cases, the blockers will succeed. And in some cases, they won't. That's the reality. Okay, I want to talk about the role of Planned Parenthood in all of this. So I told you yesterday, the other day on the phone that I had an interesting encounter a few years ago. I was sitting, I was uh, sitting in a, in a bar in a hotel. There were a whole bunch of flights that had been canceled in, in Denver. And so people were packed into these hotel lobbies and bars. And I ended up having dinner sitting next to a woman who was the, the, the director of a Planned Parenthood in a major city, let's just say in a a very blue city in a very blue state. And I started asking her some of the questions that I asked you among them, what would happen if Planned Parenthood just stopped focusing so much on legislation or at least stopped taking government funds 
and literally, and I, I, this sounds like a joke, but it's not really like, what if they just like started an, an airline, like a charter airline that picked up women in red states and flew them to Colorado and California, took care of them, flew them back. If, if Roe was overturned, it would seem to me that every donor, every philanthropist in the world, maybe even, would start funneling money into that kind of effort. And th- this woman, she was unable to process my question. She was so angry that I was even entertaining the possibility that we could move on past a legislative effort, like as if I didn't care. She was unable to engage in this conversation. I wonder what you make of that. Well, I mean, I think that that if you are providing the kinds of the, the range of services that Planned Parenthoods provide, because Planned Parenthoods, they, they do a lot of abortions, but they do a lot more contraception. They do a lot more sex education and youth programs and all sorts of things. So they're 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 looking at a number of services in this in the in this thing and contraception is very expensive providing contraception services is very expensive and definitely underfinanced so when you're talking to a person from planned parenthood who already have lost the federal money they used to get for doing contraception, they their contraceptive programs were underwritten by HHS. And, and the loss of that HHS money, so I can understand that her imagination would be limited in terms of responding to you. Okay. But, you know, your ideas are good ideas and and it is true that we have seen not sufficiently but we have seen philanthropists come forward foundations come forward and agree to invest considerable amounts of money in providing abortion services as do individual people but individual people i mean like there was a study it's a little old right now it was done by the um, uh, Committee on Responsive Philanthropy, which analyzed foundation spending on reproductive rights, primarily they're concentrated on abortion, for a five-year period, 2015 through 2019. And a very large amount of money, I think it was like almost a billion dollars, was donated by foundations for work related to reproductive rights. Only 3% of that money went to the provision of abortion services. Okay, so already, even when it was legal, even while it is legal, there are poor women who need funding to have an abortion because Medicaid in, 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 you know, Medicaid only pay, we have a federal law against the use of Medicaid funding for abortion. A certain number of states, again, the very liberal blue states, said to them, okay, so you won't let us use your Medicaid money for abortion, but we'll use our New York state. New York state pays 100% for the Medicaid abortions at whatever rate they pay. Um, Whereas before they used to pay 50% and the feds used to pay 50%. And New York said, 
this is important enough that we're going to use our money to pay for this. But of course, none of the red states are doing that. They just they just stop paying for Medicaid abortions. So, you know, the question of whether philanthropy can cover this stuff remains to be seen. But 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 that doesn't that doesn't erode the argument that you were making and I am making, which is that to the extent we can do it, we have no choice but to develop creative solutions to getting women legal abortions. Because now we're not just talking about abortion. We're talking about getting a legal abortion as opposed to an illegal abortion, getting women legal abortions. And I, I wrote something about this yesterday on some line. And, and um, if that is hiring a bus in Atlanta to drive women to Washington, D.C., assuming abortion continues to be legal in Washington, which it probably won't because the feds control Washington's laws, driving women into a one-day possibility distance to get an abortion and get home, we should be doing that. This is something I want to make sure we cover really clearly. There's a lot of alarm happening right now you might even call it catastrophizing about where we now find ourselves. I think a lot of women and men, everybody, assume that in a post-Roe world, 2022 is going to look like 1972. Tell us why that may not be accurate. Well, it won't be accurate because, I mean, if we have abortion available in a limited number of states. And in those states where abortion becomes illegal, the opponents of abortion are vigilant and active in doing everything they can to prevent abortions from happening. There will be some tragedies. There will be. Uh, Because not every woman who faces a pregnancy she wishes to abort has the savvy to find a good provider. We're not all, you know, some of us are smarter than others. Some of us are better connected than others, all sorts of things. So there will be women, there there, there probably will be a couple of deaths, not a lot, but there'll be deaths. And and there will be damage. There will be damage. So so I don't want to pretend that won't happen. But I don't think it's going to be massive. Of course, everybody advertises, advocates, presenting the extremes. Anti-abortionists present the extremes. And those of us who are pro-choice also make the hard extreme case. And but in the middle, there's going to be, you know, it's a different time. And pills are going to fill a lot of the pills are going to fill a lot of the gap. What do we know about public opinion about abortion? I guess we know a lot. I mean, there's a lot of polling, you know, so people will say, well, the vast majority of Americans support abortion rights. Therefore, why are we the 
we're letting the red states and this minority population control us. It's a little more complicated than that, it seems. It's very complicated. And again, you know, there's top line polling and then there's that which is below the top line. Top line polling, generally speaking, now, you know, like right now, the polls that are being done are, uh, do you think Roe should be overturned, et cetera? You know, 80% of people polled say, no, no, we don't want Roe overturned. Well, most people don't have any idea what Roe says anyway. You know, they don't know what they're, they, they, they don't know. I mean, when, you know, because then you ask them bottom line questions. Do you think abortion in the second trimester should be legal? No, you don't get you don't get your 80 or 90 percent thinking second trimester, third trimester. Uh, should uh, parents uh, permission be necessary for an abortion? You got a significant number of people who think parents should be necessary. Should abortion be legal for rape? Yes. Should abortion be legal for fetal deformity? Yes. Should abortion be legal for serious health reasons? Yes. Should abortion be relieved because you can't afford to have a baby? No. Shouldn't be legal. And there was a wonderful poll, which I use a lot because I do a lot of work around where are there some commonalities? Okay. There was a Gallup poll was done ages ago and they should do it again. And what they found was that among pro-choice and pro-life people, the space of agreement below the top line was significant. I mean, there are a lot of pro-choice people who do not think abortions post-viability should be legal. And there are a lot of people who are against abortion and generally think it should be illegal, who think if you have been raped or you have a severely disabled fetus, you should be able to get an abortion. We have a lot more agreement than we acknowledge. And again, my central point is those of us on our side are not taking advantage of those agreements. What would taking advantage of those agreements look like? It would mean that when you're asked a difficult question, like, well, what about abortions in the third trimester after viability? It would mean that you might say, this is an area of abortion that should be very limited, that we should have fairly strict regulation of abortion post-viability. The survival of Roe for as long as it has survived in a world, a U.S. world that we live in, where things have changed, technology, attitudes, et cetera, change so rapidly is a miracle that it survived. If you could roll back the clock, what kind of legislation would you have constructed? Would there have been any, given what they knew at the time and what they were dealing with, would there have been any better feasible course of action? I don't think, uh, for me, the answer is not in the kind of legislation that we would have had. Although I, it, it is in how we talk, how we, the kind of thinking and talking we did about abortion. That to me is the problem because, the, because even though there are significant numbers of people who think abortion should be legal, the activist side of this has not increased. 
we don't have any more people out there being active on this issue than we had 30 years ago. Um, we have not. I would. I would have looked at. A, I would have looked for. A, I don't think Roe was a bad decision. Okay. I think, and I think Roe said some things that we never talk about uh, that were very, very good. For example, Roe's argument around who is the fetus. Okay, the fetus. Who is this? What is this entity? What status does it have? Those are questions. Those that those questions are important public policy questions, and they're very important private questions. What do we owe to this entity called fetus? We have never constructed our argument around two goods in conflict. We have two goods, in my mind, there are two goods in conflict when we're talking about abortion. The goods that are in conflict are a woman's need a woman as moral agent, which women are, who should be permitted to make decisions about abortion, having babies. I mean, ha having babies is, is a very important question. And women should be able to make these decisions free of encumbrances, up, certainly up to viability in the case of abortion. That's a value, and I like I, uh, that value is important to me. It is not absolute. I do not believe in absolute rights. There is no absolute right in this in this area. At the same and at the same time, there is another value, and that value is the value of fetal life. Even if fetuses are not human beings, I'm not looking, you know, to come up with some fancy definition of when the fetus becomes a person, but Fetal life is an entity that from which we come, it has value, it is of us, and I like a society in which we make some presupposition about not taking life. So when the abortion situation arises, this is my belief, those values come in conflict. And I personally, and, and they are not easily resolvable. If your next question to me is, well, who wins? <laughs> I'd I never ask an such a question. Right, okay. I don't have an answer. But what I believe is that those two values need to be interrogated in making decisions about whether to continue or end a pregnancy. And they need to be interrogated by the opinion leaders of our society, as well as by individual women. And my side, for, for the large part, recoils in horror at that idea. That, I am not popular for that idea. I'm popular, I'm popular for a lot of things, but I am not popular for that idea. You're calling for a more nuanced approach and activists will say we can't afford nuance. Well, you, 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 you well, and then my response is, well, for 50 years, you haven't used nuance and you now lost. We are not uh, helpless. My side is not helpless. Even in this situation, we are not helpless. This is a big blow. And this means 
a lot of work. The first step is to put your eye on the states where abortion is going to continue to be legal and to do everything you can in those states to make it more available and more accessible. That's what you have to do. That's it. We have half the states. So instead of concentrating on the half, and don't ignore the state, you know, go ahead, go and demonstrate and, you know, try to elect officials and you can do all of that stuff, but concentrate on your strengths, not your weaknesses. And our strengths are the states where abortion is going to continue to be legal. It's a shame that everybody's not going to be able to get an abortion in their hometown, but everybody's not going to be able to get a hometown abortion. And so we have to make it possible for them to get it in the other states. That's it. That's the short term. Because the reality is, even if you believe that you can change the red states, you know it's going to take 10 years before you change anything in the red states, number one. and Beginning on the day of the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe, there are going to be women who need abortion the next day. And we better, we better be prepared to help. We got to be prepared to help them. That's it. Well, I'm so glad I met you, Francis. Thank you for doing this interview on such short notice. It's, it's exactly, I think, uh, what we, it's a, it's a really important contribution to this moment. So okay, I'm I really thank you a lot. I'm when, you, when, you know, when you're ready to cast it, let me know so I can listen to myself. Okay. See what I think. And Very I'm soon, gonna, hopefully. I'm going to go do my laundry. Okay. <laughs> Day well spent. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. That was my conversation with Frances Kissling. She's currently president of the Center for Health, Ethics, and Social Policy in Washington, D.C., and she's a professor of philosophy and ethics. She was the president of Catholics for Choice from 1982 to 2007, and she's been working in the abortion rights movement since the very early 1970s. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, well, you probably know the drill by now. You can visit the Patreon at patreon.com slash the unspeakable and join our community of listeners. You can also make a one-time donation in any amount by going to the show's website, theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking the donate button. You can leave a rating or a review, positive please, at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.